Hey everybody and welcome to Get Your AI On, the podcast. I'm Ciprian Borodescu and this podcast is brought to you by Morphle, the AI platform for e-commerce. I'm the host of the show and every episode I invite founders, entrepreneurs, business leaders and even AI researchers to share with us their experience in dealing with business problems that can be solved through intelligent use of data. This is episode number 17. Let's get your AI on. I'm here with Paul Orchanian, founder and CEO at Bain Public, product leader, mentor, and investor. I'm super excited and it's an honor to have you on this podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for hanging. You are a frequent contributor on popular product management blogs, and you are the creator of a number of product management methodologies, including SOAP, Planning and Prioritization Framework, which we'll get into more details later. But for now, I just want to ask you, how are you these days? What's new with (laughs) you, and how are you navigating these crazy times? Um, We're good, actually. We're... um... As you know, my company is Bain Public, and we work with a lot of uh, product, a lot of companies establishing product management within startup or uh, middle tier organizations. And when COVID hit us, um, we realized that we could basically just go virtual. Uh, so we transferred a lot of our uh, work workflows and our meetings uh, into virtual format. And um, you know, it's not as obvious. Product management is a very uh, empathetic type of uh, business, especially when you're dealing with executives. Uh, so getting a bunch of exec- executives around the room <clears throat> in a Zoom meeting and then having them <clears throat> provide you, you know, their point of view, people talk on one another, you can't have side conversations, you kind of miss the, the visual effect. So we had to really uh, change the way we, we approach um, just having these meetings uh, being able to have side meetings, um, being able to have collaborative tools. Uh, but overall, the, the business has thrived. Uh, we onboarded <clears throat> uh, many startups, um, as well as uh, mature organizations. Uh, Biron Group Santé is one of, uh, one of the biggest uh, com- companies in Quebec in health. And uh, we onboarded them on their, one of their products, Metro Media, which is part of the Metro International Newspaper Group. Uh, as well on their digital uh, transition. So a lot more organizations have decided to go full on into uh, you know, digital products and, uh, and they require nice. our help, which has really helped. Excellent, excellent. And we met last year during Techstars Montreal AI, where you are a mentor. Tell us a bit about your experience running product management for Bay Area startups and now mentoring startups, especially in Montreal? Yeah, um, well, I started 10 or 15 years ago in the Bay Area. I actually was an engineer, more of a creative engineer. And um, I jumped into product management mainly because I I had a lot of a big passion for the user experience as well as the business side. And Mm -hmm. it was a tough transition. I felt that product management was very hard to grasp. Uh, even though I had mentors at the time, um, it was hard to put a foot in, hard to understand, hard to master. What was the biggest challenge for you, by the way? Um, <clears throat> I think when you read articles about product management, <clears throat> you pretty much 
understand that you need to own the product. You, you know, some people say you need to be the CEO of the product. You need to own the conversations with engineering. You need to own the conversation with customers. You need to own the conversation with executives. So the impression you get is that you need to be that, that smart guy who knows all the data and analytics, who's done all the interviews and gets inside a meeting room telling people exactly what, what the facts are. Huh. And, um, and I think that that myth, uh, um, is wrong because it ends up giving you this allure of, of this know it all. Then everybody just despises in a company because you get into a room and all you do is talk, enumerating facts and challenging others. Uh, and that usually, uh, brings you down this rabbit hole of, you know, um, I would say conflicts with uh, executives, uh, conflicts with people who have strong opinions, uh, conflicts with the uh, engineering team who, who basically see things the other way. <clears throat> and your inability to manage those conflicts really puts you in trouble. So I was surprised that uh, while I was in San Francisco, that the lifespan of a product manager in a company was about one year. Um, and I questioned myself oh, why wow. until I... Yeah, it's really, really fast. And um, <clears throat> I questioned myself why, and within a year I was fired. <laughs> so, okay. so I reflected backwards and I said, what did I do wrong? Because I remember doing all the interviews. I remember doing, all, you know, I had all the data, all the analytics. I had I had discussions with everyone internally. Uh, and, and the missing piece was that, you know, I was just was the smart aleck, you know, the guy who shows up in a room and basically um, ends up uh, sucking the air out. And nobody likes that type of product managers. So one guy I had interviewed once uh, for a product management role within our company uh, struck me um, as being different. <clears throat> and he, he, he basically um, came into the interview unprepared and gave me these soft answers, uh, nothing about data or analytics or customers or product uh, roadmap, but all about having conversations and being genuine listening to people asking the right questions. And I remember at the time after the interview telling my boss, I don't think this guy is even like close to being a product manager. And I was wrong. That's actually good product manager. Uh, so it turns out that you're, as a product manager, you're never given in, uh, authority. Uh, you know, you got the CEO, you got the CTO, you got the CMO, you got the VP of sales and customer support and everybody else. And you're there, you know, in between the engineering team and all of these people. And you have no authority over them. So it's very hard for you to uh, influence using facts. It's not as if like you're, 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 you know, I always say you're not, um, you're not a lawyer. You're not going in front of court and there is no judge to whom you have to basically prove the facts. Um, there is no third party. You're dealing with a lot of people's egos and the best way you could approach it is by basically being a soft, empathetic product manager who listens to other people's opinions and is able to basically interview uh, the collective team, like internal stakeholders, um, ask questions, have them learn together, <clears throat> and start drip-feeding some of the facts that you have learned into those conversations in order to influence the conversation to go into the direction you want. So that's a, that's a, that's a very hard thing to do. <clears throat> a lot of people learn on the go. And I think uh, with maturity, you end up realizing that a lot of it has to do in how you manage yourself, how you manage your integrity, how you manage your conversations, how you manage your own communications. It's a bit like tennis. You, mm -hmm. you, you know, it's not the better player who wins. It's the one who, who really you know, knows how not to lose. Huh, that's interesting. That's interesting. And that's, uh, we can now unpack basically this answer because there are so many things there. <laughs> Is there a difference in approaches 
when building products between the two, Bay Area versus Montreal, because I can tell you for sure that between Romania, or should I say Eastern Europe and Western Europe, there is a difference in building products. And I think the main one being that here, there's a lot of technical talent. And so the approach is mostly technical oriented versus business oriented as you as you'd mostly see in countries like UK uh, or France. Yeah. And uh, what's your experience from that point of view? US versus Canada, let's say. Uh, but I also know that you have you have uh, customers in uh, Europe as well. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I'll, the, you know, I, I basically had the privilege to see how companies operate uh, in San Francisco and uh, end of Silicon Valley. So for me, that's that's the right way of doing it. You know, and I I can't say that that is really the right way of doing it. But you know, just just by looking at the amount of companies that are coming out of it. Uh, who are successful in product management, you could basically, you know, use that as being all well, that they're obviously doing something right. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons I moved back to Montreal was, you know, let, let, let alone the cost of living in a, in, a, in a growing family. But, you know, one of the reasons I lived, I moved to Montreal is because I realized that that culture wasn't here. Uh, we have Montreal is a French uh, culture yeah. in the middle of North America. So a lot of people don't speak English. So they don't have as much ex of an exposure to best practices as much as people in Toronto and other cities do. Uh, despite the fact that they think they do, because they do read uh, some articles from here to there, I, I think that the knowledge sharing uh, hasn't really gotten to Montreal in the same mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. um, so you find out you, that there are a lot of companies that are top down, where it's a CEO is basically conducting everything, making every decision. And unfortunately, that doesn't scale. And they hire a lot of product managers with this roll up your sleeves attitude where we'll tell you what to do. All you need to do is just go and work with the engineering team to do it, which, you know, for me is project management. So I think that's what I'm seeing in Montreal. I'm seeing a lot less um, decision making in terms of what do we build next, which is going to have a positive impact uh, on the growth of this company and help us achieve the next financial milestone. And I'm seeing a lot more of the, you know, just keep people busy. Uh, our engineers have to do something, um, you know, and we just need to, you know, keep pumping out features as fast as possible. So a lot of uh, what, uh, what we're doing, uh, how we're doing it, but not a lot of why are we doing these things. Um, in Europe, um, and I mean, I've, I've had a pleasure of going to Europe and giving a lot of interviews and, and uh, keynotes uh, to um, conferences there. And I feel there is a there's a more of a rational approach as well in Europe. Um, and and I, I, you know, in, in some ways, it's um, I, I do admire how, um, you know, um, the, the Poland, Latvia, countries up uh, you know say uh, northern europe are, are really approaching it they're very rational in in you know in most approaches on anything they do from from any scale and i think that's the yeah. really right approach. very pragmatic yeah yeah i mean uh, even if you include sweden in there you know, they're really doing great in terms of their approach <clears throat> and i think it's just it just comes from it's it might be a cultural element where it's about collaborative collect uh, decision making uh, rather than top down americans have, tend to be top down and product managers are kind of in this middle of where they prevent the top down from being too top down and just, you know, stopping the executives from going crazy and allowing for us some, for good decisions to be made collectively. 
Yeah, yeah. And I, while you were talking, I was thinking like, okay, you can expand this product management role uh, from a company or startup level to how the this pandemic was actually, and the entire crisis was actually managed. And like you said, northern yeah. northern uh, northern countries here in Europe seem to have a better grasp on the on the situation. You know, it comes and goes because uh, these are interesting times and weird times. But uh, yeah, still, yeah, it's interesting. To- you know, I, I think you're right. I, it's interesting to see how certain countries in Europe, uh, the government and the politicians took a step aside and allowed uh, the, the health officials to come in and, and uh, manage things. Uh, yeah. Whereas if you look at it in the States, uh, you have a president who basically fired uh, the health officials <laughs> and basically decided to do things on their own. And I think if you if you try to make a parallel to product management and ask yourself, why do they last a year? I mean, just because oftentimes, you know, uh, you got you got very influential people um, in, in authoritarian positions who basically decide sometimes that you know they're just gonna move things along, whether that's for the good or the or the or, or the wrong of the country. And in the states, we definitely see that that's heading in the wrong direction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember that back in uh, back at TechStars Montreal AI last year, you introduced us to the service. Uh, blueprint, which we use to better understand the context each of our AI products operate within. Uh, It was a great way to think of our product strategy as we grow and evolve. And I know this is highly visual, but can you please describe it for us? And I'm sure those listening would get a lot of value from it. And I will include the necessary links and uh, notes for this episode. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's funny because I, I internally I call it uh, executive candy because executives they they like uh, you know uh, explaining everything in one slide. Um, so if you're able to put everything in one image that describes how your how your company does business as well as all the technology that really um, allows uh, the, that customer to be supported. Uh, breaking it down in all its elements, then it it makes uh, it makes an executive happy. And every time we do the blueprint exercise with any startup or bigger organizations, they love it uh, because it's it, it's it's a you know it's a map of how things uh, are being done. Yeah. And 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 so the way we approach it is that we don't believe a product exists on its own. A product is actually an ecosystem of features that support um, a particular journey you want customers to to take. And uh, so what we, even though we all believe that software is not a linear thing, um, we basically encourage companies to start thinking in terms of linearity. What are we trying to get the customer to achieve from acquisition all the way to usage and maybe disposal of, uh, of the product or reuse of the product? Um, so the best example I, I like to give is, is the iPhone <clears throat> because the iPhone is, is a piece of hardware, but it also has an operating system. Uh, but even, even before you decide to purchase an iPhone, uh, to purchase it, you need the Apple Store, either the physical location or the online version. You need a fulfillment center to basically be able to ship that to your house. Uh, you need to be able to set it up so there is a setup uh, function within it. Uh, you need to be able to create a, an account in the cloud. So there's a cloud component to it. Uh, you need to start downloading apps. So there's a third-party app platform uh, component to it. Uh, and then you need to start downloading music and listening to music. So all of these things together create the experience you have on the iPhone. 
And once you're done using and there you go, you have the ecosystem. Yeah, it's the ecosystem. And, and so the, so we try to basically you know, break it down into DAO, those little micro elements and ultimately ask the, the executive team of an organization, you know, have you completed uh, the first step, which is the purchase? Have you completed the second step, which is the, the fulfillment, the third step, which is the setup and the fourth step, which is the hardware and then the operating system? What about the cloud component? What about the, um, the you know, the, the app store component? So these are all elements that if you put them in front of an executive in one image, uh, they and then you know ask them, can you tell me what you have completed so far and what you haven't really begun working on? Uh, and you quickly see uh, where the gaps are in your organization and your product. Uh, sometimes you you think in your head that the product is complete, but just a you know a quick uh, blueprint, and you, you quickly realize that there's maybe fifty percent of your product is incomplete. Uh, at which point you have to ask yourself, which one do I start with? Uh, which one do I need to do in the next six weeks? Which one do I need to do in the next six months? And which one do I need to do in the next six years? And I think in one image, if you're able to put <clears throat> this much power, this much um, you know visibility, transparency, and ability to make a decision, it ends up being you know the type of things that most executives um, like to see. And if you use that as a product manager to lead your conversations with executives, it really helps in decision making. And I think this is useful both for startups and for scale-ups or even for companies that are looking to introduce a new product in the market, right? Absolutely, absolutely. We recently worked with Metro Media, which you know is the newspaper you get in the in the subways all, all around the world. Um, and you know the subways are dying due to COVID nineteen. The newspaper industry is dying. Uh, you know they had a big questioning to to do. You know how do they go digital? And we introduced the, the blueprint and it was great to map out their existing ecosystem and then try to describe from that, how do we basically turn this into a digital one? So sometimes it ends up becoming like the, the actual blueprint for their existing, you know, 20 years into the making ecosystem where you can see the old CMSs and the old ERPs yeah. and everything. And you're able to ask questions, does this need to be replaced? Do we need to upgrade that? Uh, so it's it's always a, a great tool, whether you're small, medium, or large company. Excellent. And if you take this next question out of context, it might sound really funny. What is SOAP? Why should we know about it? And where can we get more of it? And yes, SOAP is not the thing you use to wash your hands with. It's actually a framework that Paul created. Tell us more about it, Paul. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a tongue-in-cheek uh, joke. Uh, our company is called Bain Public, which in French translates for public bath. And we always feel that, you know, companies need to um, use hygiene on their roadmaps. So, you know, we often, we often joke that it's time to clean your product roadmap. Um, so, the, clever, you know, we were, yeah. yeah, so we're playing with the idea of cleaning and, uh, we said, well, if you want, if you're, if, if you want to give your product the care it deserves, then you need to use soap. Um, and so we created this methodology, which is a 12 step methodology. It's, you know, it's nothing clever. It's basically a, an aggregation of a number of, uh, of things, um, that we do as product managers all into one, um, for that basically allows companies to go from, we have no product roadmap to, we have a product roadmap. Uh, and this framework, basically we called it SOAP, um, because it's it's you know it's all about roadmap prioritization, product strategy, 
Um, uh, so the S stands for strategy, right? Um, and so there is, <laughs> we used to have uh, ability to be able to tell you what SOAP stands for. Um, um, I completely forgot though at this point because I think that we just started using it as 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 what it is really. It's just uh, um, it's 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 a way to start fresh, uh, a way to basically use soap to you know remove the dirt and continue building the right product. Awesome. And um, I recently read an article you published on LinkedIn about coachable product leaders, and I want to ask you: Are founders coachable product leaders? Or is it easier to coach non-founders into a product leadership role? Um, it depends. Um, I think it's um, being coachable means that you need to have gotten to the point where you realize that uh, you will benefit from the help of others. Um, we we speak with a lot of startups. Uh, we you know we give a lot of our time pro bono to. Um, in the Montreal ecosystem as well as the Canadian ecosystem and uh, basically um, giving a lot of workshops and introducing yeah. some of our frameworks to young uh, startups in, uh, in accelerators and incubators. And um, each one, uh, basically, you know, there's always one or two um, uh, founders who come and they're ready to, to absorb this, this um, the, 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 the notions that we're bringing forward because, and they see the benefit of how it can help their organization and usually they end up um, leveraging the tools and the and the methodology and, and it helps them. Um, but we also often find that there's uh, what I call founders with Moses syndrome. Oh, okay. uh, it's a tongue in cheek joke that we do internally, <clears throat> which is the, the situation where, you know, a founder uh, somehow goes to the mountain and uh, comes back down with, with funding. <laughs> um, and uh, because of that funding, uh, they they feel like they have the ability to set the rules, you know. They are, they basically know the ten commandments of running the startup, and it's very hard at that point to challenge. Uh, a lot of what we do at Bank Pick is really challenge the company's roadmap. We we start from the top, from what is the you know the big hairy ambitious goals you're trying to achieve. Uh, what's the mission of this product? What are the strategies and tactics? And how are you defending yourself against the competition? And really dissect all of it before we jump into the roadmap exercise. And oftentimes, it's if people don't want to be challenged, they're not coachable. Uh, they they just feel like they have the answers. And uh, we've seen companies that have done very well because oftentimes it takes a very very obsessed. Um, uh, you know, uh, founder sometimes just to, you know, uh, forget reality and just drive. And those are very rare. Um, um, but there you often get in situations where, uh, you get, um, founders who, you know, achieve a lot fast. And usually that happens when, uh, they're very sales oriented. So instead of, um, driving their product, both from, um, um, there's basically three key strategies you can take when, when, when you're starting a company. Uh, you can expand your footprint fast. Uh, that could be done geographically or cross industry, um, or, and for, via sales mainly. Um, you could basically innovate in your product, or you could basically create efficiencies in order to, you know, make more margin out of every dollar you're getting from the customer. Uh, in theory, we encourage customer, uh, our founders to, drive their roadmap through uh, all three. So if in any given quarter, if you're going to release features, 
you know, try to identify one feature that's going to be margin enhancing, allowing you as an organization to cut down costs. On the other hand, try to introduce a feature that's very innovative, that's going to allow you to either create IP or, you know, contribute to your network effects or lock customers in. Um, and then, the, you know, on the other hand, we also ask them to expand their footprint and footprint expansion means if you're going geographic then you know there's internationalizations and a bunch of other things that you need to do your product before your sales team can go out and sell internationally um, so founders uh, who only privilege the footprint expansion and just you know get start with a very very solid sales team the company uh, MRR will go very rapidly and they will be able to secure a, a seed round in a Serie A maybe, but they hit a wall as soon as they get into scale-up because you often have this um, situation where the CTO is burnt out because they've basically oh, yeah. tried to support every single feature request that came yeah. in from the sales team. And, you know, this is a, these are the scenarios in companies where the sales team has already said yes to a feature uh, with the client before they go back to the team. So if the conversation with the engineering team saying, well, we already promised it and they already signed the contract. So there's no, you can't, there, there's nothing you can do other than deliver it. So, so you end up with these spaghetti <clears throat> type of um, technical debt um, products with a lot of complexity don't, that don't add a lot of value. And, uh, and then this is the first thing the CEO tells me is that they want to fire their CTO. And we've gotten into these situations um, many, many times. And if I were to look back and ask myself, why did they get here? That's because the CEO was not a coachable no. CEO from the get-go. He did. He just basically wanted to grow his company as fast as possible for sales. And so if I were to say, you know, what's the best uh, uh, type of founder? It's it's the ones who adopt the growth mindset from the get-go. They're, they accept criticism. They're you know, they have this appetite, appetite to learn, they're a team player, and, and they basically reflect on, you know, are, am I doing the right thing by putting all my eggs into the uh, footprint expansion um, basket? Because ultimately, is that going to have a negative impact on my engineering team? You know, are they going to be out of breath in yeah. six months or a year? Um, and, you know, uh, some people don't think that far. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And while you were talking, I was actually thinking about the this Moses syndrome. And uh, I don't know why, but I also thought about the FOMO. Uh, FOMO playing a role in entrepreneurs' yeah. uh, uh, lives and founders. And I think it can also play a, a role in the life of a product manager, like fear of missing the deadline for this next feature that the competition has already launched. Or it's funny because I often talk about well, the SOS, which is a shiny object syndrome. Uh, it usually comes from the, found, uh, from the founder or the CEO of the company who tells the product manager, we need the shiny new thing like AI or like yeah. blockchain or something like that. And they're, they're yeah. coming from this fear of missing out uh, um, angle. And the product manager has to learn how to say no. No, not now, but not just no because it's an SOS, but mainly no because you know how or why would blockchain really help our company? How would um, the blockchain allow us to uh, uh, contribute to the growth of the product? Uh, and if that conversation isn't had and it's top down, the CEO will say, look, I'm, I have FOMO. Uh, here's an SOS for you. Uh, and please, can you make it and execute it? And the product manager isn't able to have that conversation with the CEO. Then the engineering team will ask the same question. Why are we building this? Why are we building this instead of building that? And as soon as as a product manager, you're stuck in this situation where the engineering team is questioning the decisions made at the top level. 
I mean, as a product manager, you're stuck in the middle in between two rocks and, you know, that's, that's usually the toughest place it can be. And which usually results in someone, either the engineering team deciding to get rid of you and, you know, uh, pivot, uh, trying to lobby for that or the CEO basically realizing that you've taken sides with the engineering team and you decided not mm. to build that feature, which basically, you know, and, and ends you up out, out the door. So it's, it's a tough role to be in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I have here a note while you were talking, chief, no manager. Is that the product manager's role to say no within a company, to stand up to the CTO or the CEO, depending on the situation? I wouldn't say it's no. I think I usually call them a chief repeating officer, the CRO, uh, because uh-huh. because they're not saying no. They're actually repeating the strategies. They're repeating the tactics. They're repeating the metrics that the company is trying to accomplish. So if someone comes to you with an SOS, mm-hmm. you know, you as a product manager, you have to ask, okay, well, how does this align to some of our strategies and tactics? Which needle is this going to help us move? And by repeating some of that, those foundational elements that you established early on in the, in the product, which is why I always ask product managers, you need to ask your CEO, what is the what is the product mission? What are the product strategies and tactics? And regularly keep coming back to them in order to make sure that they haven't changed. But if you're able to basically use that as a foundation and repeat it constantly, then what happens is your no answer is not going to come from you. It's actually going to come from the CEO or whoever's making the request. Because if, 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 for example, someone's asking for blockchain, my question is, how does this align with the strategies? And the answer is, well, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and well, in that case, you have two options. You either say no or we change the strategy. Either way, we're going to have to address it. Uh, so you don't become the, the, the guy who is always saying no. You simply become the guy who is always bringing back the fundamentals of why the company needs to grow and how it needs to grow. By the way, for everybody listening, you can find a lot of good, inspiring articles around product management on bainpublic.com. And in preparation for this episode, I also browsed a few of these articles you wrote on your blog, and I found them very insightful. And I think each one really speaks to very specific topics There are part that are part of the product manager's role. And there's a piece there that you wrote, I think, back in April, in the midst of the first wave of the pandemic, where you talked about why product managers should be playing dumb. And that's kind of controversial. Can you explain? <laughs> yeah, it's um, it basically um, came about when I was watching... Um, in big celebrity interviews with Larry King on CNN or uh, Barbara Walters. I mean, and I always ask myself, like, what makes them such great interviewers? And, um, you know, and there was a quote by Larry King who said, you know, the, the reason I'm such a good interviewer is because I try to play dumb. I come unprepared to the interview and just try to have a conversation. Uh, so I started looking more into that and realized that ultimately as a product manager, when you get inside a room, you have the CEO, let's say, and the CTO and the chief revenue officer in the room, and you're trying to you know, deal with um, a request for a new feature, you are theoretically interviewing uh, that audience. You are asking each one of them what their point of view is. You're trying to extract from them key informations uh, that are very specific in their own worlds as um, you know, a sales guy will always have different objectives than the CEO, which will be different from the CTO objectives. But if you're able to extract each one's drive and interests and 
and put them on the table so they, they collectively learn together, then ultimately you are doing your job because you're helping them make sense of uh, what's happening and really collaboratively make, take a decision. So ultimately, as a product manager, you are in this position where you can't be um, the person who controls the room. You're more of the person who is, you know, imagine the way Larry King used to have this big microphone in front of him, and he's just looking at someone across the table and just asking questions. You know, at some point, I remember he had asked a, a pilot, uh, an airplane pilot, that how does he know when he's landing an, airport, an airplane um, that the plane has landed? You know, it's like, it's such a stupid question. <laughs> but how did that question to be? You don't even prepare for that question. It's, it's just one of those things where you just use different interview skills to be able to just like drive people deeper and deeper and deeper into a conversation. So just by studying that, I realized that there, there's a lot of product magic to learn um, you know, and become that Barbara Walters, that Larry King, who just gets in a room unprepared and just asks questions to the CEO. And usually these people in higher positions, they usually have a lot to say. So it's, it's very important for you to just to be that guy who listens, uh, allows the team to learn together. And, you know, they will thank you in spades and credit you for just being that, you know, that psychologist almost who basically allowed them to express themselves openly uh, in, in the safe space. And ultimately, a lot of value, I believe, is given to product managers if they're capable of doing that repeatedly over and over again across many crises a company will face. Uh, and then if you find a product manager like that, then you have to keep them. I mean, that person is going to help your company because, first of all, they're going to be the chief repeating officer, always pointing the company back to the strategies and tactics, but on the other hand, will allow these big egos not to really clash as much. Uh, and he's not going to be another ego into that equation. Yeah. He's simply going to be the dumb guy who's asking pretty dumb questions, just allowing everyone to, to openly and freely speak. Yeah, being being Socratic about it. And this is something that we also learned during Techstars, uh, meeting with mentors and stuff. You know, a lot of mentors have this habit of asking questions. And I, and I found that these are the best mentors. And similarly, it applies for product managers and for, for CTOs or CEOs and whatnot, asking these questions. And I like how in that article you wrote about these what and how questions. Start with mm -hmm. a question, what, and then you follow up with a how. Uh, it's pretty interesting. I love that. Well, it, it's important to create a framework for product managers because, you know, there's extroverted people in this world and there's introverted people in this world. And it turns out that the introverts, they don't like to speak. They like to listen. And they, that's, that's, that's a great, uh, um, being an introvert and a product manager is a great thing because you are not going to be the, the, the loud mouth in the room. Uh, you're just by, this predisposition, you are going to be listening and asking the what and how questions. But, you know, it turns out that I think I haven't seen the numbers, but I believe like 70% of the world population is an extrovert and, and there's less introverts than extroverts. So, you know, if you're an extrovert and, and you just like to talk because, you know, your energy and your internal batteries are being constantly refueled by debating questions openly, um, how do you become a good product manager if, you know, you're being asked? to listen. Um, and uh, so giving a framework of the what and how questions is just a way to say, you know, uh, try to use your energy in a meeting to, to, you know, to ask the right questions, 
um, rather than uh, babble along because what you perceive as being like uh, an energy lifting, uh, let's let's debate both sides of the story conversation actually isn't helping you be a product manager. It's actually hurting you more. Um, so uh, it's, uh, how, do, how, do, how does an extrovert become an introvert and a good product manager? <laughs> you know, that's a, yeah. it's a very, very difficult challenge. But, um, you know, they say the best leaders are introverts. I believe in that because they, they basically listen. And basically it's a spectrum, right? I mean, you're not 100% introvert or 100% extrovert. It's a spectrum. Yeah, it depends. Yeah, yeah. And I think as a product manager, you need to, if you realize you're an extroverted product manager, to give yourself the tools to push you closer to the introvert spectrum without exhausting you to the point where you leave the office and you're like, I can't, I, I you know, I'm exhausted because I spend my whole day listening yeah. and not talking. Um, so how, what are the tools you could use in order to, you know, uh, become a better leader ultimately? Because leadership always comes down to listening. Uh, it's, 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 you know, the higher up you go in an organization, the, the more you get to listen, the less you have to talk. Very interesting. Uh, sometimes when startups get acquired, one of the founders, and I've seen this a lot, whether that's the CTO or the CEO, becomes a product manager. Have you seen what worked best? Is it the CTO or the CEO better prepared to assume the product leadership role in, a, in the new company? It, it depends. It's really about the dynamic of the CEO, CTO. Uh, from the onset, I've seen organizations where uh, the CEO and CTO have changed roles, uh, where over a phone call, uh, and uh, this is the example with Waystack, uh, Waystack had a, uh, the CEO was yeah. in San Francisco yeah. and the CTO was in uh, uh, somewhere in China. Uh, they were part of an accelerator. And um, and there was um, this, the CTO uh, said, look, I'm in a meeting with investors and they want to talk to the CEO, but you know, you can't leave San Francisco and come to China. So what do we do? And uh, the CEO said, well, now you're the CEO. <laughs> and then he just transferred his role over a phone call. And, and that's how it became. And that those, role, those roles stuck. And I, I feel that is a, a beautiful gesture to show that, you know, we're partners into this and it's not about our roles and we can both do this. So if they really want to talk to the CEO, then you are the CEO. Um, and I think it's, 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 if that dynamic is the case, then it doesn't matter who becomes the product manager because there is a lot of respect to uh, this collaborative decision-making, right? Uh, but if it's, a, you know, I see a lot of organizations where uh, the, it's two co-founders, but the CEO pretty much has, you know, 95% of the decision-making power is really the driving force and the CTO is just executing. Uh, if that's the case and you're expecting the CTO to suddenly become a chief product officer, um, you know, it's because of their inability to influence the CEO from the get-go, they're not going to be able to do anything more than just uh, doing exactly what he says. So that those are situations that I wouldn't recommend the CTO to becoming a chief product officer, but I do recommend CTOs to get coached uh, to in order to become better leaders uh, and figure out how to influence the you know this high-powered, opinionated um, CEO uh, with whom they could eventually you know it's a marriage, it's it's a, it's a company that that goes on for years. So how do you basically go back to uh, that equal footprint? So that's how you manage your integrity how you manage your experience, how you manage your communications, how you manage yourself, how you manage your um, your trust, your rest. These are all part of being a leader. 
And I think um, if the CTO is ready to do that, then he's definitely a coachable person who needs coaching. And it's not something yeah. you can do by yourself. Um, so, so yeah, to, to answer your question, I would say um, yeah. it, it really depends. It really depends on the dynamics. And this is why product management is hard in organizations, because it really comes down to the culture in that organization. Uh, if you you could be the best product manager and if you were to leave company A and go into company B who has a very poor culture, then if you're not um, nimble and uh, soft and capable of influencing others and you're being put in a position where the culture is basically dictating you to, to behave a certain way, uh, you might actually be the worst product manager. So it's very culturally or culture dependent. Uh, well, honestly, Paul, there are so many questions that I have in my mind, but uh, I want to be mind. I want to be mindful of your time as well. And uh, let's, uh, let's jump to the final special section on the podcast: lightning questions and answers. A series of fun, short questions that you have to answer really, really fast. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Yeah, ready to go. So here's a, a tough one for you: Montreal or Silicon Valley? Um. I prefer Silicon Valley for the sun and uh, the lifestyle. Uh, I'm, uh, I, I love Montreal, a, lot, a great cultural city. Uh, this is a tough one, uh, but I made my choice, Montreal, and this is where I live today. Um, and definitely, uh, I would say Montreal with a footprint in Silicon Valley is the best. Excellent, excellent. Your favorite movie? Oh, I have many. Um, I think that I like Gladiator uh, with Russell Crowe, okay. uh, okay. and and it's it's all you know, these goodies. Yeah, it's it it gets me every time I watch it, mainly because it's it's kind of aligned with product management. It's like here you are, uh, you're you're the this gladi- uh, you're basically this uh, uh, general in the army. You've been given the the role of being the next. Uh, uh, emperor of uh, the Romans and suddenly, you know, you find yourself as a slave and you have to work your way back up. And, you know, it's kind of very interesting of how, you know, he uses his influence in order to get the troops and all the other slaves to basically follow him and, and basically, you know, orchestrate uh, his takeover of the Roman Empire. I find it's a it's a beautiful story of, uh, of you know, of redemption. But on the other hand, it's a beautiful story of how somebody with no authority can can basically rise to becoming influential a leadership story indeed yeah yeah it's yeah. a leadership story in there yeah yeah cats or dogs it's funny my daughter i have two daughters one likes cats the other one likes dogs um <laughs> i personally like cats more uh, but uh, to be fair to both of them i would say both okay Cats are introverts and dogs are extroverts, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> best of both worlds. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, yeah. there is a there is a there is a dog called uh, Emu. Is that it? It's a Japanese dog. Uh, they usually look like a fox with a uh, with a tail okay. that's curly, and uh, they're actually often referred as the cats of the dog world. And oh. uh, if I, yeah, if I were to choose anything, I'd, I'd choose one of those because I feel like they have a little bit of both. Awesome, awesome. Uh, last book you read, and by the way, any good books on product management? Uh, yeah, that you recommend? Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, uh, Todd Olson just released a book called The Product Led Organization. It's a it's a beautiful book. Um, I actually haven't finished it yet. I'm, I'm maybe three, three quarters through, but. Uh, 
It's uh, basically published by Appendio, uh, who basically leads the, um, the Product Craft website. Uh, Product Craft is, I'd say, one of the premier product management uh, um, publishers out there. Uh, they have mm -hmm. tons of articles to which we contribute on a regular basis. And I think the Product Light Organization book is one of the first books I've seen that really puts product management, defines it well, and really um, deals with the challenges of uh, product managers. Awesome. Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos? Jeff Bezos. I actually... <laughs> Why? Uh, <laughs> I, I like Jeff's um, vision of being like, um, you know, he basically has this big, hairy, ambitious goal for Amazon. And he's constantly um, been driving his company with this re constant reevaluation of the strategies of tactics or the, of the organization and reinventing it on a regular basis. I, I think that he exemplifies yeah. uh, the person who is capable of thinking large and big and long term, but really shifting and pivoting his company on a regular basis. Um, and, uh, and which is the reason why you see where it is today. But in terms of Elon Musk, I've, I've basically deep dived into Tesla's, um, strategies and tactics. And I can tell you that they're, they're actually very similar to, um, to, to Amazon in terms of, uh, it's the, the width at which he's really defined it. I, I think it's, it's beautiful. Like if you look at the, just some of the stuff that they're doing, it's, it's eye candy. And, uh, I, I have a lot of respect for both. Yeah, yeah. Bonus question. It's year 2050 and one of the product leaders you coached decided to dedicate the book they're writing to you. How would that paragraph sound? Oof. I know it's a philosophical question, but give it a try. <laughs> um, I would say Paul who taught me that I have to give credit to others uh, when things become successful. And knowing him, he would not take credit for the achievements uh, that I've had. Oh, wow. Um, that's amazing. That's, yeah. uh, that's a really nice way to, to end this episode. Paul, it was a pleasure to have you. And thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with me and with us. How can people reach out to you for ideas and comments? Um, thank you, by the way, for everything and full credit for the work you guys are doing, um, both from the company as well as this podcast. Um, if you want to reach out to us, you can go to bankpublic.com. Um, the, the email address is info at bankpublic.com, which basically is direct email to me. So you can just reach out there. Um, and I invite you all to read uh, the over 60 articles on bankpublic.com. Uh, on product management, we have two ebooks. Uh, just go to the website and you can grab all of that, uh, uh, all that stuff uh, to learn. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you. All right. This was Get Your AI On podcast. Thank you all for listening and be sure to subscribe. We're going to post a new episode every other week. So stay tuned for the next conversation. See you next time.